0: You get what you need. Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network, and you can find that on PRN.fm. There's a lot of other ways to find it too. You can get it on iTunes, on other uh, podcast uh, apps, and you can get it uh, by dialing in to listen live at 424-203-8046. And you can catch all of our back shows of Visionaries at visionaries.podbean.com. And be sure to download our app for iPhone and Android to listen live and hear back shows. So today I want to meander around some things I've been encountering listening to a lot of stuff online. Oh, by the way, um, um, there's certain things I follow. You know, the uh, iTunes channel that I listen to, the people I follow on Twitter. I love Twitter. I don't find much on Facebook. There's a couple of people on Facebook who are not on Twitter, so I follow them there. But <clears throat> uh, Twitter allows me to pick uh, you know, very interesting people that I want to keep up on. But anyway, um, I guess I I follow on Twitter, Science News. So I click on this article. The first detailed map of Red Fox's DNA may reveal domestication secrets. So you may have encountered the story. I think I talked about it maybe a year or so ago. But in the old Soviet Union, there were in Siberia breeding facilities for silver foxes, which is a form of red fox, to make coats. And um, they started, they had them all in cages, and they, some were more friendly than others. I don't know why any of them should be friendly. They're about to be turned into coats. But anyway, the ones that would snap at the handlers got turned into coats And the ones that didn't, bred. And eventually they found that they became domesticated. And they basically concluded they had reproduced the process whereby wolves had become dogs. So today we're pretty sure dogs come from wolves. You know, for a while they didn't know, uh, were there coyotes or... Hyenas or some other canine-like creature? No, 100 percent dogs come from wolves, and they uh, relate to human beings. They like to be petted. They get excited when human being comes into the room. They wag their tail, uh, etc. Uh, it's the difference between a dog and a wolf. And they found the foxes doing exactly the same thing. And these creatures became so domesticated that they, uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed and this laboratory lost its funding, they tried, I don't know how successfully, to support themselves by selling their silver foxes as pets, the domesticated ones. And so this article, you can look it up, Science News, it'll pop up on the top right now, describes the, what, what went on, pictures of um, actually apparently breed for both hostility and domestication in these foxes. And next step is to look at the DNA and say, what's the difference? Which will tell them DNA-wise, genetically, how fox, uh, how wolves became dogs. But I think there's something else going on. And that is that the same thing is, well, first of all, before I do that, uh, what they have found previously, I will see if this DNA research confirms it, is that in certain ways the um, fox stays juvenile. So whether it's a, a cat or a dog or maybe probably a bear, Uh, If you have a baby, a cub, it likes people. It'll roll over, let you scratch its tummy, uh, likes to tumble and wrestle. Uh, But if you're doing that with a tiger or a lion, there's a point where uh, uh, there could be trouble. And some people keep, you know, lions that domesticated and stay uh, that are raised in captivity stay affectionate, but it's not a good idea. And so what happens is dogs keep these juvenile characteristics of wolf cubs. They grow up, become full size, but there's some of their characteristics that, and we can see that. A wolf has a pointy snout, a cub has a Stubby snout, and so does a dog, so there 's a series of characteristics of juvenile wolves that dogs uh, have, and so maybe that 's how it happens but we'll we'll find out more as this research goes on. but my thought is, um, I think the exact same thing is going on with human beings, and not. Well, is it deliberate? I don't know. But uh what I was thinking about talking about today was our culture today and the attack on the Enlightenment. It was going to begin with universities and how they've been taken over by the postmodernist Marxists. And they um we see uh oh let's say in Throughout school, in grade school, high school, that there's certain behavior of young men, boys and young men, and that's roughhousing. That's why school has recess and gym and sports that, you know, young boys and to some extent young girls have a lot of energy to burn off. Young girls are apparently better at sitting behind a desk eight hours a day which is why they do better in school. And today, in many, many schools, uh, many departments are 60% women, undergraduates in liberal arts and medicine and law, and men are just disappearing from this educational system. And it could be because who men are, what they need, what they're about, are being denied. In these colleges. So, for example, uh, in part due to Title IX, there's been a cutoff limitation in the opportunity of men to be involved in sports because a college cannot have more men in sports than women. They have to be equal. And if only, you know, a few women want to be in sports, well, that's how many men can be in sports. And a lot of men who, you know, young men, say, I'm going to college, and I loved wrestling in, uh, in high school, and I want to wrestle. I don't have to be a collegiate champion. I don't have to make the top team. But I'd like to be able to go spend Thursday afternoons in the gym wrestling. Not allowed to if there aren't enough women in sports. And so then the men give up. They're just not going to do it. So, uh, and through grade school and high school, it's sort of handled with Ritalin, right? Natural tendency of uh, maybe human beings is not to want to sit eight hours still (laughs) behind a desk. So you feed them these uh, high-powered drugs, and in many schools, a majority of at least the male students are on Ritalin. So if that isn't an attempt at domestication, (laughs) I don't know what is. And there's a desire to breed a new kind of human being, one that would be amenable to uh, what we see in Europe. And we see how, um, at least until recently, due to some changes that we're not supposed to talk about, uh, there's much less violence in Europe much less crime in Europe than there is in the United States, and more acceptance of being um, good subjects of the government, you know, exceeding to what the government is demanding of everybody. So that, and then we see a push for that in the United States, you know, that, well, isn't it wonderful how Europe is no longer democratic, Uh, Who you vote for in parliamentary elections isn't what counts. What counts is the EU in Brussels, which has this monster bureaucracy. None of it elected. And it decides, you know, how big squares of toilet paper have to be, how thick cheese is sliced. Everything about your life is uh, decided by, controlled by this bureaucracy of the EU so maybe the last uh the last european nation with some sense of individuality is is uh britain and that's why they pulled out of the eu but anyway um there are a lot of people pushing for that's what we should be doing here and then we start seeing showing up um attacks on elections so you know, the uh, Trump won the electoral vote, but Hillary won the popular vote. So maybe we should not have an electoral college. And then uh, I just started a book, uh, Democracy for Realists, which shows how, um, you know, uh, maybe elections aren't a good idea. Maybe they don't bring about the government we want or should have. And I don't know what their alternatives going to be. I sort of uh, agree with Churchill, who said uh, uh, democracy is uh, the worst government, worst form of government, except for all the others that have ever been tried. And, of course, there are people who think that um, they know the one that will work, um, even though it hasn't yet been identified. They know how to bring it about. And are working about it, on it. Anyway, uh, and then we see our colleges taken over by this uh, postmodern Marxism. Again, very hostile to democracy and really weird stuff. So, um, I there's, there's a, a website that I love called, what's it called? Communications from Elsewhere. And there there's several that will do this, where you can, each time you click in, you get another essay. And the essays are generated by random word generators stringing together postmodernist jargon, postmodernist and Marxist jargon. And I was sort of struck by this when I started seeing postmodernist articles online. I don't get any journals that had this. Although, I did see some of my architecture colleagues starting to write this way, and I strongly, I know the students have no, can't understand a word they're saying. I have a feeling they don't understand a word they're writing, but they're sort of in charge of the second to last semester in our school, students do a research project, and in the last semester, they design a building based on their research project. So uh, they have to write uh, an essay, and I, I'm not involved in that. Uh, my school is, I don't know, for whatever reason, has not asked me to be involved, but. They're all collected, and occasionally I'll pick them up and flip through them, and it uh, I could tell that's what the students are doing, just stringing together a bunch of jargon that they have no idea what it means. Well, these websites will do that, and let me just read you something from one of them. Um, Reality is intrinsically used in the service of the status quo, says Foucault. However, subtextual nationalism suggests that class- perhaps, ironically, has significance. Lacan promotes the use of cultural discourse to analyze society. If one examines Marxism, one is faced with a choice, either accept non-semiotic cultural theory or conclude that culture is part of the failure of truth, but only if culture is distinct from consciousness. Otherwise, we can assume that the goal of the writer is deconstruction. Thus, several theories concerning uh, supremacist discourse may be found. The Rubicon and therefore the futility of Marxism depicted in Echoes The Name of the Rose is also evident in the island of the day before, although in a more cultural sense. Now, that makes absolutely no sense, but that's what people are writing these days. <laughs> so, so um, um, I, you know, I go through my colleagues' writing, and that's what I encounter. By the way, they mention um, Umberto Echoes, The Name of the Rose, which was a quite popular movie, if you didn't read the book. With what's his Sean Connery was in that, and um, Echo is, is semiologist. He's interested in uh, language, and is you know is, is there a relationship between the name of a thing and the thing? And so that's sort of what he explores in his semiology. In the Island of the Day Before, it's about ships in the, I'm not good in remembering, maybe it's the late 1700s, they're just working on um, longitude at the time. And, you know, latitude, they could, they could figure out longitude was difficult. Or is it the other way around? Longitude, they could figure out latitude was difficult. And eventually it was solved with super accurate clocks. Of course, today, you just use, you just use a GPS. <laughs> I was uh, uh, out on Long Island on a ferry um, a couple of years ago with a buddy who was, you know, quite navigationally capable. And I had done a little bit of uh, time on boats. And all of a sudden, the ferry's going in a circle. So we go up to the to the wheelhouse and just sort of lean in and say, hey, how come we're going in a circle? And I said, oh, we lost contact with the satellite. Our GPS lost contact with the satellite. We're waiting to pick it up again. And we said, what? They can't line up two buoys (laughs) to navigate? I mean, we did that in high school. (laughs) So hopefully they could, uh, but just didn't, uh, weren't going to be doing it. But anyway... In the Island of the Day Before, Echo is dealing with that. And he talks about the international dateline. So once you have these longitudes, you you get an international dateline. And there is Greenwich. And there's another one on the other side of the globe. And... There's a point where you have to step over a line, and it's yesterday or tomorrow. You know, you go around the world, it's one hour, one hour, one hour. And, like, we're at one hour at 1019. But we begin the show at 10 a.m. Eastern time. But if you're in um, New Mexico, it's two hours earlier. Or if you're in California, it's three hours earlier. Or if you're in Indonesia, I was a couple of years ago, it's 10 o'clock at night. Uh, And I remember going, we were in the middle of nowhere on Bali and at a Buddhist meditation. And I'd go uh, every couple of days at some business involvements I had to keep up on. And I'd go to this uh, communication station. There's a fenced in area with a, a compound, some antenna, and make a very expensive 10-minute phone call. You know, give the guy the phone number and go to a booth and pick up a phone. (laughs) And uh, as as I recall, it'd be 9 o'clock in the morning. in where I was in Bali, it'd be 9 o'clock at night in uh, who I was calling up in New York. But anyway, so what happens where you, you know, you're, you jump at 12 midnight till 1 in the morning. So you've crossed the international date line. What does that mean? And how is that, um, you know, uh, if you want to joke about it, a uh, friend of mine, when he was in Japan and he'd speak to his colleagues in New York, he said, you want to know what's going to happen tomorrow? <laughs> because it's already tomorrow here. And uh, so in the in this book, of course, we know this is just an arbitrary way of, of setting a clock, but they weren't so sure about that in the late 1700s. And if you were to step back and forth across the international dateline, line, are you, are you in yesterday and tomorrow, yesterday and or today and tomorrow, or today and yesterday? And are you, uh, if you do it, uh, continually, would you stop aging and of course, we would say, obviously not, but uh, they were um, they were thinking about that in those days, trying to figure out what what was dependent on words or not so anyway, there's this really bad writing in um, postmodernism uh there's a guy I really liked, Dennis Sutton who's no longer with us, but he edited a really nifty journal. Um, let's see, where is it? Eh. Nah. But anyway, one of the things this it was a journal on literature and philosophy, and it, I think it still exists, but of course he doesn't edit it anymore. He died a few years ago. But it prided itself, or prides itself, on being jargon-free. In other words, it talks about ideas, but without um, postmodernist jargon, hopefully. So, philosophy and literature, that's the journal. So, in Dennis Sutton's day, they would have an annual bad writing contest. So, I recalled that when I was looking at uh, uh, at this issue here and looked it up. And I see, the bad writing contest celebrates the most stylistically lamentable passages found in scholarly books and articles published in the past few years. Ordinarily, journalism, fiction, departmental memos, etc. are not eligible, nor are parodies. Entries must be non-ironic from serious published academic journals or books. Deliberate parody cannot be allowed, in a field where unintended self-parity is so widespread. Um, Two of the most popular and influential literary scholars in the U.S. are among those who wrote winning entries in the last contest. So one of them is Judith Butler, who's a major feminist theorist. And... I won't try to summarize what she's about. So if you're listening online, hop over to Wikipedia, look up Judith Butler. But uh, she talks about gender identity. So Judith Butler, a Guggenheim Fellowship winning professor of rhetoric and comparative literature at the University of California, Berkeley. Admired as perhaps one of the 10 smartest people on the planet. ha, <laughs> ha, I love it hey where, where do you where do you where where do you enter the contest to be one of the ten smartest people on the planet how do how do I get in on that? Uh, wrote the sentence that captured the contest's first prize um, so anyway uh, let's go to professor Butler's prize winning sentence appears in. Further Reflections on the Conversations of Our Time, an article in the scholarly journal Diacritics. This is way back, 1997. So, But they're just as good today. So let's see what Judith Butler writes. Wow, 20 years ago. The move from a structuralist account in which capital is understood to structure social relations in relatively homologous ways to a view of hegemony in which power relations are subject to repetition, convergence, and re-artification brought the question of temporality into the thinking of structure and marked a shift from a form of Althussian theory that take structural totalities as theoretical objects to one in which the insights into the cognizant possibilities of structure inaugurate a renewed conception of hegemony as bound up with the constituents, sites, and strategies of the rearticulation of power. Whoa. I bet you she makes more than I do at the at the University of, of California Berkeley. Um, so this uh, this uh, website I got this from goes on to remark Dutton, who uh, is the ran this contest remark, that is possibly the anxiety-inducing obscurity of such writing, that has led Professor Warren Hedges, of Southern Oregon University to praise Judith Butler as probably one of the 10 smartest people on the planet. And then it goes on, the year's second prize. Uh, well, that's enough of that. Uh, but anyway, that's what goes on in universities these days. Um, and I go by, you know, my colleagues' classrooms and uh, um, hear this kind of thing. And, eh, you know, I try not to do that. Um, I tell my students, um, if you catch me doing that, let me know. Uh, and uh, not only let me know, but if you don't feel comfortable telling me, you know, here's the email of my uh, coordinator in my chair. But anyway, why are they doing this? What's going on? So I have a thought. However... Um, let's take a break and uh, uh, this is John LaBelle. this is Visionaries we'll take uh, a break here a few announcements and we'll be right back Progressive Radio Network is now on iTunes Search for us to listen and download past shows or get them updated automatically. Just type Progressive Radio Network in the search bar and download any show free of charge. Progressive Radio Network information for the independent mind. Have you ever noticed how pathetic the mainstream news is and how it's biased, vague, and utterly devoid of any objectivity? Do you or anyone you know still believe America is a democracy? Well, I insist you tune into the Plutocracy Report with Vince Marcanti right here on PRN every Friday at 4 o'clock. I'll explain how things truly are, like America is a veiled plutocracy, and I'll show you the evidences everywhere. Once we remove the program Bias and Deception... Our news outlets convey the scripted narrative of the deep state while distracting and dividing us. It's time to break the dichotomy of division so we can finally unite and remove these sociopathic plutocrats from power. Join me on the Plutocracy Report with Vince Marcanti. This is PRN, Progressive Radio Network. information coalition and our show is titled what in the cell is going on we will be revealing how vaccine toxins damage our cells how to allow the body to heal itself and how to protect yourselves from the drug company's agenda join us every monday at 2 p.m on progressive radio network prn.fm What you want But if you try sometimes you might find You get what you need. Hi, we're back from our break. This is John LaBelle and you're listening to Visionaries on PRN.FM and a lot of other ways to get us. Be sure to download our app and then you listen on your phone and just Bluetooth it to your car. I have an older car so I use a cable to uh, plug my phone into the into the radio system. And when I rent a car, I get in a car and the radio starts playing something from my phone. I don't know how it selects what it selects or how it does that, but it starts bluetooth away. Um, anyway, I'm talking about this um, attack on the Enlightenment in our culture today. And this is something, you know, we could spend a whole show on what the Enlightenment was or is, but there's a book out right now by Stephen Pinker, a really interesting guy. I really like his stuff. He did a book called The Blank Slate, and that sort of brought him to uh, attention, and he talks about, in The Blank Slate, he says, the mind is not a blank slate, as we're born with a lot of... Um, hmm, predetermined structures in our brain. And any psychologist who's objective knows this, <clears throat> but it doesn't fit the modern, um, modern notion of uh, postmodernists. And they want to insist that uh, the that, that mind's a blank slate and all of our characteristics are totally determined by culture. Which, of course, we know is not the case, but uh, they insist on that. So he's not too popular with uh, progressives, Steven Pinker. And his, um, oh, before I go on to his Enlightenment book, he did a book called, how do these people write all these books? He did a book called The Sense of Style. And if you're into writing, which I am, you know, I like to read books about writing. What is it? Eats, Shoots, and Leaves is a famous book which can have two different meanings. You know, um, a panda eats, bamboo shoots, and bamboo leaves. Or somebody walks into a bar, has a meal, shoots somebody, and leaves. So, which does eats, shoots, and leaves mean? And it depends upon how you punctuate it, and you better get it right. Because <laughs> they can have very different meanings. So, but anyway, if you're into writing... Uh, all my colleagues will recommend to my students a book called, we call it by the author Strunk and White, The Elements of Style. I don't think that's such a good book, and I prefer Zinser's On Writing Well. But uh, if you're really serious into this, this, is more of my students would be interested in. But <clears throat> um, Stephen Pinker did a book, The Sense of Style. And it's on audio, and it, you can't listen to it because... So much of it is dependent on diagramming sentences and punctuation and talking about the technical how grammar works in relationship to how the mind works and which is an interesting idea, you know um there are debates today about freedom of speech, so you get some provocative nut <laughs> gets invited to a college campus. So then there are demonstrations to stop their talk. Well, what if it's a provocative but um, thoughtful person? Um, So where do you draw the line? And should freedom of speech be absolute? Uh, Should we ban provocative nuts? Should we ban provocative interesting people with whom we disagree? Uh, Well, Part of it is uh, freedom of speech is freedom of thought. You can't have freedom of thought. Restricting freedom of speech is restricting freedom of thought. And I think that's where we are today. We're beginning to tell people what they can and can't think. Actually, my mother, my late mother, who's like, really bright, um, started noticing that some maybe about 20 years ago, she started objecting to the New York Times. She says... It's one thing where they want to tell me in the editorial page what social what uh, social and political policy should be. But when they start telling me what I should think, and they do it in the news articles, in the subtle ways they're written... Uh, she really, you know, got annoyed with the times. So that's where we are today, where the establishment tries to tell us what to think by controlling our speech. But anyway, why? And um boy, that was a convoluted digression. <laughs> I was on Stephen Pinker's The Sense of Style. And I'll get to this uh freedom of thought in a moment. But he shows that the way we structure sentences and, you know, is is this structured right or wrong? And, uh, you know, a, a grammar handbook is what the book basically is, is a discussion of how we structure thought. You know, speech is uh, an externalization of thought. So, anyway, his latest book is... Enlightenment Now. And what it's about, it's not really so much what the Enlightenment was. That's lots of studies. Enlightenment is something that comes about in the late 1700s proposing a replacing of tradition with rational and scientific evidence-based inquiry. So, does the sun go around the earth or the earth go around the sun. And actually of course it's neither, but uh, the before the scientific revolution, before Copernicus, you would look it up in the Bible, look it up in Aristotle. As the scientific revolution and the enlightenment unfold, you, let's figure it out. Um, I remember there was a much beloved new physics teacher came to my high school <clears throat> the year I was in physics in senior year. And I was not in his, were his class. There were two classes. I was in the other one. But I was in touch with my fellow students who were in uh, Dr. Love's class. He just died a couple of years ago. And students from my year, had remained friends with him throughout his entire career. I I guess students from other years as well, but in my, you know, alumni uh postings, uh I uh follow what was going on. But anyway, in his physics class, you would do things like you have a straight edge and a piece of string. Figure out how far away the moon is. <laughs> so that's you know, that's really How to think. You don't look it up in Aristotle or look it up in a contemporary physics textbook. You figure it out. Well, how do you do that? You learn how to think. And that's what he taught. So um, that's sort of the. Dr. Love is the Enlightenment in a nutshell. You know, what kind of government should we have? And that's what the uh, founding fathers, to use a term, thought about, and put together. And they said, well, you know, what could go wrong? What do we want? What do we want to achieve? How do we achieve that? What tends to go wrong? And of course, what tends to go wrong is that uh, people seek and power and then seek to expand it. Well, how do you mitigate against that? Uh, Et cetera. So, that's the Enlightenment. Well, but Pinker's book is mainly, it's more about affluence. That what it brought, one of the things it brought about was affluence. Like, um, in since 1800, a 90% drop in poverty. You know, that it, defining poverty is living on less than $2 a day. So um, in 1800, 90% of the world's population lived in abject poverty. Today, it's 10%. And just 1970, it was 40%. So like three quarters of poverty went away (laughs) in just the past 20 years. And it's interesting how we don't absorb that. We still think the world is the way it was. And when we started to get a grip on it, I first became aware of that when arguing about American militarism during Vietnam, um, you know, the there was this talk about the military-industrial complex taking over, dominating universities. Um, there were demonstrations. There were anti-war protests. And I was of that persuasion. And my father-in-law was... Uh, you know, real straight type. And he, you know, just... The United States is not militaristic, would be his position. I thought about it. There's an interesting article I read in a dentist's office or something, in some magazine, about the bonus march. So during the Depression... Veterans from World War I were supposed to get a bonus, and Congress had been lax in appropriating the money. And being that we were in a depression and lots of people were unemployed, people were desperate for this bonus money. And they finally organized and marched on Washington. The head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, this is the 1930s, was MacArthur, and he was in charge of bringing out troops and even tanks to suppress these demonstrators and the article describes what 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 was the military like then? What were the conditions and Of course, the United States had geared up during World War One. But we totally disarmed after World War I. That was the understanding. It was supposed to be the war to end all wars. And we sunk battleships. So did Europeans. Um, we disarmed. Uh, we, everybody got out of the army. So that at the time of the bonus march, 1930s, before World War II, the American military was, would have been outgunned by the Czechoslovakian army. The Czechoslovakian army was bigger than ours. And or they would have been outmanned by the New York City police force was bigger than the American military. So that was the world my father-in-law grew up in. And that was sort of was imprinted into his head. What military? You know, (laughs) and I grew up in the in the era of the Cold War, bombers. B-52 bombers circling 24 hours a day, seven days a week, hydrogen bomb tests, um, uh, 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 nuclear bomb shelters, missiles in silos. That was the world I grew up in. And so we were seeing two different things because we weren't looking at the world then, then being— I don't know, when we have this argument, 1974, pick a date. Um, But rather, we were arguing about the world he grew up in versus the world I grew up in. So I grew up in a world in which billions, uh, maybe a billion Chinese were in abject poverty. Uh, Hundreds of millions of Indians in India were in abject poverty scratching the earth um, millions starving and famines that's that's what I read about that's what went on that's the 1970s it's gone um, that you know the a billion Chinese came out of poverty zip like that in the past it's only 40 years so um, that's what Steven Pinker's book is about what we haven't noticed that's happened. So anyway, um, he attributes this to the Enlightenment, to, oh, scientific and technological developments that come from freedom of thought and uh, freedom of market opportunity. So without arguing about that, that's his argument. And he is being viciously attacked for this. and the book's filled with charts and graphs, you know, nobody denies them. You can find them online. You can get the book, strongly recommend it. But where he gave a talk, of course, at Ted. He's a very prominent figure, important book. And he described all this, showed slides of the charts and graphs of, you know, 20, 40, 60, 90 percent drops in infant mortality, maternal mortality, childhood stunting, malnutrition, um, famine. It's just, you know, it's still here, but 90 percent less than it was just 40 years ago and on and on. And there are. There are websites that track this stuff. Uh I don't like to talk about my personal finances, but a little story. Uh, I moved to uh I moved in 1976 and pretty much big change in life. A lot of stuff was in storage, took a, a year off, traveling, and now I had to reconstitute an apartment, my late wife and I. And so we need a big color TV and a VCR. Well, those things cost $1,500 each. I didn't have that kind of money. That was, uh, 1500 was probably two or three month take home. How the hell do you buy a TV? I rented one. And there were TV and VCR rental shops all around the city. Just like today, there are, I don't know, Subway sandwich shops. You can't go six blocks without hitting a Subway sandwich shop. You couldn't go six blocks without hitting a, a TV rentals. So and then about 10 years later, every six blocks, there was a um, a video rental shop. <laughs> then they got replaced by um, Blockbusters, and then they went got replaced by Netflix. But anyway... Today, a magnificent 55 inch flat screen, high res TV, 500 bucks. You know, uh, uh, corrected for inflation, it's a 90% drop in the cost of a TV. So, anyway, um, that's the world we're living in. And the Postmodernists don't want to admit it. They just tell the. St- I mean, they tell my students everything's getting worse. Um, maybe pollution's getting worse. Maybe global warming's getting worse. A um, lot of pollution's not getting worse. New York City air's a lot cleaner than it used to be. But a lot of things are getting better. Why don't people want to believe this? What's going on? Well, <clears throat> what I want to get to to today. So I'll wrap up with this, is what Friedrich Nietzsche and Kierkegaard called ressentiment. And ressentiment, how's that spelled? R-E-S-S-E-N-T-I-M-E-N-T. It's sort of a French translation of resentment. So it means resentment, but it means more. and It's a bit more complicated than that. And... um, The. It's resentment. It's feeling that, okay, I've failed at a lot of things. There are a lot of limitations in my life. There are things that I would have liked to should have achieved that I haven't. Why is that? It's their fault. (laughs) It's never my fault. Uh, It's their fault. It's the system's fault. It's the 1%'s fault. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> Jordan Peterson says something interesting. You'll be lecturing at a college, and he'll point to the audience and say, you're the 1%. Uh, um, compare. I'm not in the 1% in New York, but in the world I probably am. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, so it's my fault. Um, so... Nietzsche talks about how this resentment, this why others have achievements that I don't, are never my fault. Not only do I resent them, I can create entire religions, entire philosophies, entire socioeconomic systems based on this resentment. this resentment. Well, Kierkegaard has a beautiful um, passage. Uh, I quote this in my book. uh, Visionary creativity. (laughs) I'm just waving it for, um, uh, we're on video as well as audio. But in my book, in the appendices, I have an appendix on Ressentiment and talk about how um, um, we've made entire constructions of Um, thought about how mm, we don't admire those who are successful, uh, but rather resent them. So the passage from Kierkegaard, I'm going to try to summarize it rather than read it because we're running short on time, but it says, imagine there were a great gem out on the ice and the ice were thin and someone went out on the ice and crawled across it at great danger to themselves, um, and recovered the gem and brought it back. Rather than admire them, we say, well, the gem wasn't that valuable. Well, it wasn't important that we got it. Well, it's not fair that he got it. All kinds of excuses for why we didn't um, uh, crawl out on the ice to retrieve it, or at least admire and support those who do, he could have made a human chain holding on to his ankles um, to uh, get the gem. And what Nietzsche talks about is how we literally construct entire philosophies, religions uh, based on this. And then he talks about strong and weak people and says uh, the weak person wallows in this resentment about how My life has been ruined uh, where others could, you know, by others. I could have, should have, would have, as Marlon Brando says uh, in The Waterfront. I could have been a contender. And the, the other way he puts it is to say that The strong person, the person he admires, is someone who, of course, they feel resentment. But they're so busy getting on with life. I mean, life is so consuming if you actually plunge into it and engage in it that you don't have time for that. Um, Yeah, you know, the impulse is there. It pops up. You say, yeah, there's an impulse. Uh, Now i got to get back to what I'm doing. And so there's a um, there's a suggestion for all of us that we might start thinking in terms of how we might engage and support this. So I've been thinking about the people I've been encountering on the intellectual dark web and I think uh, three really prominent ones that are Oh, indicative of what's going on. I'll talk more about what the intellectual dark web is. I spoke about that in the past. But Ben Shapiro is uh, an observant Jew. Um, Jordan Peterson doesn't want to admit it, but he's pretty much a Christian. Sam Harris, although he's seriously into meditation, is not a Buddhist but an atheist. And yet they um, all share an Plunging into engagement with, interest in, openness to the in-depth discussion that we should be having of our lives and our potentials. So let's wrap it up with that. This is John Lobel. This is Visionaries. Catch us every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, whatever time you're part of the world. Catch our back shows on visionaries.podbean.com and catch us again next week.